right, this morning we're going to continue our study of the 1689 London Confession of Faith. And Bruce had some extra handouts if anybody wants one about the overall content and development of the 1689 Confession. But our focus this morning is going to be on the first chapter. And that's found in the Blue Trinity Hymnal that you have. The Blue Trinity Hymnal. The first chapter of the London Confession of Faith is of uh, the Holy Scriptures. It's found on page 670 in the back of the hymnal. So page 670. This chapter presents a comprehensive view of the Scriptures. It affirms what the Reformation called sola scriptura. That is, that the scripture alone is our final authority. And that it is the infallible rule of all matters of religion. So this morning I, I want to consider the content and development of chapter 1. And then just summarize the key biblical support that they cite. And then finally to conclude uh, with just some practical application. So, first of all, the content and development. They entitled this of the Holy Scripture. And basically, they derived it from the Westminster Confession and also the Savoy Declaration. They derived it from those former confessions almost verbatim. They followed what they said very closely. There may be a little change here or there relatively minor, but basically it's verbatim. I brought with me the Westminster Confession of Faith because I figure somebody might ask me, well, what does the Westminster say about this? So I brought it. I looked at it. I looked at Westminster. I looked at Savoy. But there's so much material here this morning that it just didn't seem appropriate to try to delve into exactly and precisely all the developments of source material. I noted one little difference, and I wondered why they did it, but anyway. So one of the things we wanted to do when we developed this Baptist hymnal in the mid-1990s was we wanted to replace the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is in the original version of the Trinity Hymnal, with the Baptist Confession of Faith. So that's why you have it in the back of the hymnal. Now, this this chapter has 10 paragraphs. And I've collated those 10 paragraphs under seven headings. First of all, the necessity of the Bible. Secondly, in paragraphs 2 and 3, the substance of the Bible. Thirdly, in paragraphs 4 and 5, the authenticity of the Bible. In paragraph 6 and 7, the suitability of the Bible. In paragraph 8, I had a hard time figuring out what to call this. So in the past, I called it the transmission of Scripture. The last time I taught it, I referred to it as the dissemination of Scripture. Or it could even be the dispensation of Scripture. I'll explain what that means when we get to it. And then paragraph 9, the interpretation of Scripture and then finally, they conclude with the preeminence of Scripture. So first of all, paragraph one, the necessity of the Bible. The Holy Scripture, 
is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. So you get the idea of the paragraph when they sum it up. In that next to last phrase, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. Which is why I titled this paragraph, The Necessity of Scripture. The First of all, they start with a general idea of why the Bible is necessary. It's necessary because there is no other infallible rule of saving knowledge. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, infallible rule of saving knowledge. There's no other place to go. Then they get specific. And it's because general revelation is not sufficient. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, that they see the knowledge of the creator of his eternal power and deity in creation. But it's not sufficient to save them. It leaves them inexcusable. And the confessions allude to that text in their statement. The reason that the Bible is necessary is because general revelation of God is sufficient to leave men without excuse because they see that God exists in creation. And even though it's enough to leave them inexcusable, it's not enough to save them. And therefore, special revelation is necessary. And then they give you the specific explanation as to why the Bible is necessary. Because the Bible is the exclusive and complete embodiment of special revelation. To summarize the skeleton of what they say, they say, therefore, it pleased the Lord to reveal himself, which makes the Holy Scriptures most necessary because the former ways of special revelation 
have now ceased. They underscore the fact of special revelation. It pleased the Lord to reveal himself by his word. The method of special revelation in different ways in times, at sundry times and in diverse manners, referring to the visions and prophecies and theophanies of the Old Testament. The function of special revelation to disclose his revealed will that he has for his people. And then the embodiment of special revelation. Then it says, and afterward, to commit the same special verbal revelation wholly to writing the scripture, the Bible. The occasion of the Bible in redemptive history upon the completion of special revelation and afterward. The scope of the Bible, the complete body of essential special revelation to commit the same wholly unto writing. The design of the Bible to preserve truth and comfort the church for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church. The exclusiveness of the Bible, the only way of special revelation which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. Now when they say and afterward, they refer to God producing the Bible, the completed body of Scripture in redemptive history. First of all, there was special revelation and special verbal revelation. And that alone existed in the age of the patriarchs. And then, beginning with Moses, scripture and other forms of special revelation, like visions and seeing the angel of Jehovah, other forms of special revelation coexisted with scripture while the scripture was being completed for some 1,500 years from the days of Moses till the coming of Christ. But then, afterward, in the apostolic generation, God completed the Bible, and the other forms of special revelation ceased when it was completely committed to writing. This seems to be what they intend to say when they say, and afterward. So there was started out, before scripture, there was special revelation. God revealed himself verbally to men. Then there was a time of coexistence when the scripture was being written down for 1,500 years. Then there was the time of completion. In the apostolic generation, the coming of Christ, the scriptures completed, and those former ways ceased. So that's how they present the necessity of the Bible. The second major focus of our confession of faith of the seven issues the second one is the substance or content of the Bible. Of what does the Bible consist? And in paragraph two, they tell you what it is. And in paragraph three, they tell you what it isn't. And again, this is copied verbatim. Under the name of Holy Scripture or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. 
And then they go through the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament in the order in which they are found in the English Bibles. All 66 books. And then they conclude saying, all of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and practice. Then in paragraph 3, they define what the scripture is not. And in this, they are clearly distinguishing themselves from those branches of professing Christian religion that recognize these books as canonical. And they say in paragraph 3, the books commonly called apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So they define the content of the scripture in paragraphs 2 and 3, both, po both positively what the Bible is and negatively what it is not. And the next major focus in paragraphs 4 and 5 is on what I call the authenticity of the Bible. They present in paragraph 4 the foundation of its authenticity and then in paragraph 5, the evidence of its authenticity. The Bible is authentic, written, special revelation from God. It is the word of God authored by him. And the evidences that the Bible is the word of God are externally, its excellence, or form and content and internally the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now first of all, look at the foundation of its authenticity. It is that it has been authored by God. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Its divine authority is the foundation of its authenticity. And then the evidence is the excellence of scripture and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Paragraph 5 says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfections thereof are arguments 
whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, given all that external evidence, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Isn't that an amazing balance? In the Bible, why do we believe the Bible is authoritative? Because it's God's word. But how do we know that? Well, we see the external evidence, but ultimately the internal evidence is the work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word of God in our hearts. It's a supernatural work that convinces us of the authenticity of this scripture. I mean, you could say there's external evidence in it. For example, Isaiah 53 is written 700 years before Jesus came into the world. And it's like Isaiah wrote it Standing at the foot of the cross. How could that be if it's not the word of God? Well, that's part of the external evidence. But ultimately, that's not the final ground of our conviction and assurance of its authenticity. But it's the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And without that, we don't have conviction or Assurance of its, of its authenticity and authority. So that's the authenticity of Scripture. So we, so we looked at the necessity of Scripture. Why do we need it? Because it's the only embodiment of divine special revelation. And general revelation is insufficient to save people. What does it contain? Positively, negatively. What it is, what it isn't. Thirdly, why is it authentic? How do we know? Well, we know... Not only because it manifests itself to be the word of God by things like Isaiah 53 that really don't have any other explanation except God who knows the future showed to Isaiah what was going to happen 700 years before it happened and he told him to write it down. And he did. But ultimately it doesn't even come from that. It comes from the witness of the Holy Spirit testifying in our hearts. Now that brings me to the fourth major category which is the suitability of the Bible. The Bible is most suitable for the purposes for which God gave it to his people. And its suitability for us involved both its sufficiency, paragraph 6, and its clarity, what is commonly called the perspicuity of scripture. But if you don't like big words like perspicuity, let's just put it in clear English clarity. Should I say, let's put it in perspicuous English? Clarity. It's clear. So you go look at the, its clarity and its sufficiency. It, because it's sufficient and clear, it is suitable for the purposes for which God gave it to us. First of all, let's look at its sufficiency in paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, 
is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. So you don't add to it. You don't subtract from it. It is sufficient. Everything we need to know in order to glorify God, to see sinners saved, to see Christians delivered from the wrath to come, for faith and life is either expressly set out or necessarily contained. Now this is one of the only significant phrases that they changed. Our Baptist fathers changed this phrase from what the Westminster and Savoy had said. The Westminster, in paragraph 6, reads, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, sounds the same, doesn't it? is either expressly set down in Scripture, here's what they changed, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. They changed that into necessarily contained. Now, why did they do that? I can't explain exactly why. But maybe they thought and were concerned about God's people putting too much trust in human logic and inferences and reasoning and basing their doctrines on reasoning and inferences. And so they wanted to take that statement out and say necessarily contained, not human reason by good and necessary inference deducing it. Best I can do with why they changed it. As I said, I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but it just struck me that they would change a statement like that. Why did they do that? Well, I, I think probably they thought it was too dangerous and it could cause people too much to depend on human reason rather than on the Word of God. Nevertheless, now that's part of the story. We acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So, even though it's clear, you still need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to understand it in a spiritually beneficial way. So they distance themselves both from mysticism and rationalism. And they say that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered according to the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules, rules of the word which are always to be observed. And it's important. This is a very balanced statement about worship. And it's why we must be careful that we don't get bogged down with our understanding of the regulative principle of worship 
so that everything we do in worship has to be explicitly revealed in Scripture. No. The confession of faith clearly says that that's an extreme. You can't say, well, we're not allowed to use a piano, or we're not allowed to use a hymn book, or we're not allowed to use a microphone, or we're not allowed to use a light to look at our notes. Because it's not explicitly revealed in Scripture. But these are not the essential elements of worship. These are circumstances of worship. And we need to be careful to distinguish the essential elements of worship, which are prayer and singing and giving and the ministry of the word, read and proclaimed and taught, and the observance of the Lord's Supper and Christian baptism. Those things, we have to be careful to distinguish the elements of worship from the circumstances of worship. Like whether we use a hymnal or not. Whether we use musical accompaniment or not. Whether we use amplification of a microphone or not. Whether we have a PowerPoint or not. These are circumstances. And they're to be how long the services last. Whether we use air conditioning. These are circumstances of worship that are to be regulated by the general light of nature and Christian prudence. Should we have services that last for six hours? How many services should we have on a Sunday? How much time between them? All these things, the light of nature, Christian prudence, according to the general principles of the word, which are always to be observed. This is an important balancing perspective that is absolutely crucial that we take it into account when we figure out the worship of God and the rule and government of the church. Very important principle. The Bible is sufficient, yes, but that doesn't mean that we need an explicit command in order to figure out whether we should have a hymn book or not. Because there are certain circumstances that are circumstances rather than elements of worship. Which So that's the sufficiency of the Bible. And then the clarity or perspicuity of the Bible. Paragraph 7. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear to all. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to sufficient understanding of them. So what you need to know to be saved and to live a godly life is so clearly revealed somewhere or other that you don't have to have some special insight in order to understand it. The faith is once delivered to the saints. So that brings so that covers the suitability of scripture. So we've looked first of all necessity of the Bible Content of the Bible or substance of the Bible, its authority or authenticity, and its suitability. And that takes us through the first seven of the ten paragraphs. Now, paragraph eight, we come to this one.
Paragraph 8. Paragraph 8 is kind of a long paragraph. As I say, I, in previous times, called it by different names, either transmission or dispensation, it describes the process by which written special revelation comes from God to us in every generation, everywhere on earth. And that transmission or dissemination or dispensation, handing out or disseminating of the scripture, involves a process of inspiration, preservation, and translation. Inspiration, preservation, and translation. How did the Bible come from God to us? First, inspiration. But he didn't inspire it yesterday. It was completed approximately 2,000 years ago. So how does it come to us? Secondly, preservation. But he inspired it in Hebrew and Greek. How can we be reading it here in an English-speaking country? Translation. Inspiration. Preservation. Translation. Gets the scripture from God to us. And this is the process by which he transmits or dispenses or disseminates the Bible. Now that's the best I could do with explaining what they're talking about in this paragraph. So first of all, they start with inspiration. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old. And the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God. So inspiration pertains explicitly to the originals. The Old Testament books written in Hebrew and the New Testament books written in Greek. These are inspired. Every word of them is inspired. Then the next issue is preservation. And by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages and are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. Now when it says that God kept it pure in all ages, it doesn't mean that he preserved the ancient original autographs in Hebrew and in Greek for 3,500 or 2,000 years or sometime between, and that those originals have been miraculously preserved by God for some 3,500 to 2,000 years, and they're in a glass case somewhere in a Garden of Eden or something like that, and we have to go there to see them. That's not the manner in which God preserved what was written in those original autographs. Rather, he preserved it by a remarkable process. 
of copying those originals over 3,500 years. And by that process, preserved the truth written in those original autographs from 3,500 to 2,000 years ago. And he's preserved it until this day. And finally, translation. Translation. But because these original tongues, Hebrew and Greek, are not known to all the people of God, who have a right to and interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar. Now, vulgar doesn't have the connotation that it has to our ears. Vulgar doesn't mean, to put it in the vernacular, sit down and shut up. Vulgar doesn't mean that. Vulgar means common or vernacular into the common language that is spoken by people of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures they might have hope. So that the Bible is to be translated into the commonly spoken vernacular language of all the nations where the scriptures come, whether they're to be translated from Greek and Hebrew into English or into German or into Spanish or into Dutch or into Portuguese or French or whatever other language is spoken commonly by the peoples to whom the scriptures come, they are to be translated into those languages. And it's not that any one translation is inspired or infallible. It's like, well, it's not that the Spanish translation or the English translation or a certain English translation is the superior one from which all others are, no, no, no. The, the, the scriptures, the inspiration of scripture does not relate to one English translation or one Spanish translation. It relates to the original autographs in Hebrew and Greek preserved for 2,000 to 3,500 years and then to be translated into all the languages spoken where the scriptures come and where the gospel goes. And that's the process of transmitting or dispensing or disseminating the word of God to his people. It's a process that involves inspiration, preservation, and translation. That's paragraph eight. Okay? Paragraph nine. The interpretation of the scriptures. And here you have what's uh, commonly referred to as the analogy of scripture. Uh, the key principles of interpreting a text are context, you don't lift it out of context, and the analogy of scripture, what the rest of scripture says, so that 
In paragraph 9, this is how we ought to interpret the Bible. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And that principle is referred to as the analogy of Scripture. Therefore, here's the implication of that principle. When there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold, but one. In other words, it doesn't have three or four different meanings. What does it really mean? It must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So the infallible rule of interpreting the Bible is the Bible itself. You don't go to an outside book. There's no other manual that God has given or no group of men that are the final authority as to how to interpret the scripture. The infallible rule is not a church council and it's not a man a manual of tradition, but it is the Bible itself. And the appropriate way of interpreting anything in the Bible as to what it actually means, what it really means, the right sense, is to look up other passages in Scripture that shed light on the meaning of what may not be as clear as other things so that you can understand it. That's the rule of interpreting Scripture. You interpret Scripture by Scripture. Context is king. The analogy of Scripture is king. It's not human tradition. It's not some human council that has the final authority. God has not set up some supreme court of human beings to determine you know, the right interpretation of a text. There is no such thing. The Supreme Court to determine the meaning of Scripture is Scripture. And the final topic, number 10, the preeminence of the Bible. So they talk about the transmission or dissemination of Scripture, the interpretation of the Bible, and finally, the preeminence of the Bible, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees, counsels, and opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, unto which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. Scripture is the final and ultimate authority and judge of every matter that it addresses. It is the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion, it is the supreme source of our faith. And so, not only is it the supreme rule of interpreting, it is the supreme authority to resolve all controversy and dispute in religion. We don't appeal to a council. We don't appeal for final authority to a tribunal. But the final authority to resolve all disputes is the Holy Scripture itself. It is the final rule of interpretation and the final authority by which all controversies and disputes are to be judged. Well, that's my understanding of what we have here in this chapter. The necessity of Scripture, paragraph 1. 
substance of Scripture, paragraphs 2 and 3, what it is, what it isn't. Authenticity or authority of Scripture, paragraphs 4 and 5. The suitability of Scripture, its sufficiency and clarity, paragraphs 6 and 7. The dissemination or transmission or uh, giving out of Scripture, paragraph 8. Interpretation, paragraph 9. And finally, the preeminence of Scripture in paragraph 10. Now that brings me to underscore much more briefly. Obviously, we don't have the time this morning to delve in detail into all the scriptural references that our Baptist fathers use to support what they've asserted in these 10 paragraphs. But there are two texts that they quote and cite for support repeatedly. The first text, they cite four times. They cite it to defend and support the necessity of scripture, and uh, also the substance of scripture, which is interesting. And then, uh, let's see. The authenticity, and uh, there's one other time. Oh, here it is, the sufficiency of Scripture. So they cite this text four times. And that text is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, And that from a babe you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ. Every scripture is God-breathed or inspired of God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. And you see why they would use that to speak of the inspiration of Scripture, authenticity of Scripture, sufficiency of Scripture, and even the substance of Scripture. It's a key text that they cite repeatedly to support their doctrine. The second text they cite three times. That text is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. And we have the word of prophecy made more sure Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a lamp shining in a dark place, till the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. For no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spoke from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. They use that to describe and support uh, to, to support the necessity of Scripture and also the foundation of its authenticity, divine authorship. And they used it one other time to, yes, the interpretation of Scripture, that the infallible rule of interpreting Scripture is the Scripture itself. So those two texts are the primary biblical support that they cite to, as the foundation 
of this doctrine. Finally, this morning, let me close by saying what a wonderful thing it is that we have the Bible. What a tremendous privilege it is that the Bible is ours. And we ought to consider the tremendous and great privilege of having the Bible. This calls for gratitude and good stewardship of this great treasure. What a privilege it is to have the completed word of God. A completed special revelation. Pretty much at our fingertips to have access to so many different even English translations. And if you know the Hebrew and the Greek, even the English, the Hebrew and Greek can, can even get uh, um, a, a Bible that has Hebrew and English together or Greek and English together. You can get all kinds of things if you want to study it further. The tremendous tools and blessing and privileges that we have to have God's word so available it's something that we should greatly appreciate and it's something of which we should be good stewards we should read it we should study it because God gave it to us for our good and for his glory